The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning. How are we? Good. It's good to see you all this morning. Hey, let's pray together. Father, uh, as we come to your word this morning, um, I'm excited. I'm just thankful uh, for your word and that it's faithful to us to always speak and to give us exactly what we need. And so that's what we trust in together this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen. So we are in the fifth week of a sermon series called You Asked For It. And in the series, if you've been here at all, you know, we've asked you to let us know what you have questions about. And then we've done our best to answer those questions faithfully from the Bible. And this is the fifth week Uh, Pastor Matt's done a phenomenal job every week walking us through some tough topics. And this week we get to the topic, the question we're going to address has to do with congregational worship. And uh, that fits well because I am the worship leader here at Story City Church. And specifically the question has to do with this. Uh, The question that was submitted asks this, is uh, in the same way that our sermons present theology to our church and uh, and exposit the Bible, is there theological way to Worship Is there theological weight to the worship songs that we sing? Um, Or, for instance, are they just artistic? Is there just freedom and we can be artistic with our worship? Or is there theological weight? If you're new to the church, theology is simply the study of God and God's relation to the world. And so the question is, does do the lyrics of the songs we sing have theology in them? And so there's a simple answer to that question, but I kind of want to take that question and use it as a, a launching pad to expand out, to talk a little bit this morning about our philosophy of worship, what we believe about congregational worship, and why we do it. Um, you see, there's a, a belief in the church that, that worship is just the singing of songs, but it's so much more than that. And so I want to talk as a young church this morning, as a new church, what, what sort of culture are we seeking to build as worshipers? And what sort of worshipers would Jesus like to see us formed into? And so as we do this, let's start in Romans 12. Uh, and we're going to bounce around a lot this morning. It's more of a topical sermon, which isn't typically the way I love to preach. But in order to cover all the ground, we're going to bounce around a little bit. But we'll start in Romans 12.1. And in Romans 12.1, read this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So if you've been in church at all, or even if you haven't been in the church at all, worship is a word we hear a lot. We use it in a lot of different ways, and it's a word that starts firing off different imagery and different ideas in each of our head. It's a word we can hear, and everybody hears a different reality. It's kind of like the word love. Like I can say, I love tacos, or I can say, I love my daughters. Like there's different meanings in each of those words, but the, the, probably when you hear me say worship, the first idea that comes into your head is the idea of this moment when we come together in this room at the Colony Theater, all over Burbank right now, churches are doing, where we come together and we sing songs. People are bowing, people are lifting their hands, and every week as the worship leader at Story City, I get a front row seat to watch you all worship, and I just gotta say, you guys have some awesome hand motions. Uh, I just want to demonstrate a few of, of, of them that I see uh, every week. You know, there's, there, there's the simple, like the novice moves, like just the simple elbow flap. You know, you're just kind of, all right, I'm still exploring the space. I'm getting used to this. And then you can, but once you graduate, you come to church for a few months, you kind of graduate to the 
flat screen TV hold, you know? Or, or one of my favorites, the dueling light bulbs. The Mufasa. The pointer finger. The tomahawk. The schoolroom. Or like the really, really advanced uh, moves, the Rocky. This is like, you are all in, you're going for it. I haven't seen this one yet, actually, at Story City, but I'm hoping someday <laughs> to see a full-fledged Rocky in our ranks. So it's funny, but is that what worship is? Is worship just this moment where we come together and sing songs, or is there more? In Romans chapter one, Paul tells us that our true and proper worship is not singing of songs, but it's to offer our bodies, our very selves, our lives as a living sacrifice. That's what Worship is. So while the singing of songs is a part of worship, it's implicit. It is a fruit of worship, not the root of worship. It is a part of, the, of a greater whole. And in his book, The Worship Pastor, uh, author and worship leader Zach Hicks lays out three different kinds of worship for us. And he, he does this by explaining them in kind of three concentric circles. You can throw them up on the screen, Jenny. Uh, he says the first form of worship is is worship as a whole, and this is something everyone does. Whether you're a Christian or not, you worship. Worship is not something that's even uniquely religious. Worship is a universal human reality, no matter how close you are to God, how far you are from God, no matter how real you think faith is, no matter how much you think you don't have faith, you worship something. We all worship something. And, and so that first bigger circle is this idea of worship. And then it gets smaller, Christian worship and gathered Christian worship in the assembly. So Paul says in Romans 12:1 that we worship in view of God's mercy. He says, in view of, so in view, like you're seeing something, you're seeing a reality. In view of God's mercy, you offer your body as a living sacrifice. And the reality is all worship, whether it's Christian worship, gathered Christian worship, or just any kind of worship, it's done in view of something. Meaning this, you see something. It looks beautiful to you. It looks lovely to you. It looks good to you. You see it and you say, that's gonna give me significance if I can attain it. That's gonna fulfill my life if I can attain it. That's gonna give me meaning and satisfaction and purpose. And so you give yourself in view of that thing to the attainment of that thing gladly. See, this is why worship is not a uniquely Christian or uniquely spiritual thing even because everybody has something in view in life. We all have something in view. It can be literally anything. Romance and sex, a husband or wife, a boyfriend or girlfriend, family, kids, grandkids, travel, experiences, knowledge, books, ideologies, politics and politicians, playing sports, watching sports, working out, video games, movies or TV or celebrities, listening to music, playing music, cars, homes, cooking food, eating food, drinking beer, drinking wine, making beer, making wine, drinking coffee, making coffee, narcotics, work and career, clothes, fashion and beauty, collections of any sort and any kind, and so on and so forth, the human heart can worship anything and will worship anything that it thinks will bring satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and identity, and there are no exceptions. Everybody worships something. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, Ginger, slow down just a touch. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me just, let me commend to you two documentaries. 
Uh, the first uh, is not on Netflix. It's a documentary called The King of Kong. And in The King of Kong, it's the story of a guy named Steve Wiebe. And Steve Wiebe is the world record holder in the game Donkey Kong, the, the Nintendo one with the joystick, like arcade version. And uh, this documentary unfolds and it tells the story of how Steve Wiebe failed at most things in life. He was a basketball player, failed at basketball. He was uh, a pitcher and, and got injured and failed at pitching. He wanted to be a musician and he, he never quite made it as a musician. And so he ha- grows up and has a family. And at the, in his mid forties, he decides that he's going to be the world record holder at Donkey Kong. He sets his eyes upon it and he fixes his eyes on that's the thing that's going to give me meaning and significance and, and resurrect me from my past failures, and he achieves it. He sets the record for Donkey Kong, but in the midst, his family suffers, his career suffers, but he gets that record. And there's a couple quotes I wrote down while watching it. He said this, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I play video games, which I think is a far superior addiction. This one was my personal favorite. I wanted to be a hero. I wanted to be the center of attention. I wanted the glory. I wanted the fame. I wanted the pretty girls coming up to me saying, hi, I see you're good at centipede. (laughs) You know, you miss that when it's said fast, but that's a phenomenal quote. Another, another documentary that I think exemplifies worship and how we can give our hearts to anything is one on Netflix called The Perfect Bid. It's about a guy who's, who gave his life at the, in his 20s to The Price is Right. He got obsessed with The Price is Right, winning The Price is Right, getting on The Price is Right, had this weird infatuation with The Price is Right model. And, uh, and he goes on The Price is Right dozens and dozens of times trying to get on. But in the meantime, he's given his life to cataloging, watching every episode of Price is Right ever and cataloging the prices of every item and memorizing them. Different models of cars, different cars with different settings, everything. He memorized it and he ends up getting on the show on Price is Right, and he ends up getting a perfect bid in his showcase showdown because he knows the exact price of everything and winning both showcase showdown prizes to the point where the show investigated him. See, the human heart can give itself to anything and it will give itself to something. You and I have given our hearts to something and that thing can change, it can morph, but the reality is we are not sufficient in ourselves. We know we're not enough. We need something to fulfill us, something to sustain us, something to give our lives meaning. And what we decide that thing is ultimately becomes the thing we worship and it drives our life. It determines who we become. It determines what we look like. It determines what we talk about. Worship defined, worship defined, is glad surrender to, wholehearted pursuit of, and overflowing praise for something, anything. Overflowing praise for something, for anything, for whatever your heart loves the most, some litmus tests that you can give you, some breadcrumbs we can follow. You might be saying, okay, I'm honestly not sure. What do I worship? Like, is it It might not be Jesus, but what is it? Like, what's the thing that my heart just chases after? I don't have to ask it to do it, it just goes. What is that thing? Well, here's some breadcrumbs you can follow. Follow your thoughts. When you're just bored and when your head's on your pillow, what's that thing your thoughts drift towards? Naturally. Follow your time. What is it easy for you to give your time to? Follow your money. 
maybe more than anything, your money will show you what you love. See, we talk about how money can be an idol, but the reality is money's not an idol. Money shows us our idols. Money shows us our idols. Where is it easy for you to give your money to? What is it easy for you to spend on? What is it, you don't, you don't have to, oh, okay, I, all right. No, what is it easy for you to give your money to? And what is it easy for your lips to praise? What do you talk about? When, when, when you're bored in a conversation and this subject comes up, oh, good, I wanna talk about that. That's the breadcrumbs we can follow that show us what we worship. So everybody worships and Christian worship is surrender and pursuit and overflowing praise for something. But what is Christian worship? That second bubble. Christian worship is glad surrender to, wholehearted pursuit of, and overflowing praise for Jesus. See, here's the problem with what we call world worship, worshiping Donkey Kong or worshiping the Price is Right or worshiping anything really other than Jesus. It doesn't work. It breaks us at the fountain. The pitcher we're trying to scoop water up at the fountain shatters. We can't hold it. It's not enough. World worship fails. It leads us down paths that lead to suffering and depression and all kinds of addictions because it's never enough. I need more. That's why Jesus calls himself living water, bread of life, because Jesus alone is the thing that you can give yourself to that in the end wells up in everlasting joy and perfected life but everything else breaks us. It fails us. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon wrote that God has set eternity in the hearts of men so that they long for something this world can't give them. If you, we did a whole series on this, but Solomon was the richest man that ever lived. He had everything. He was the wisest man that ever lived. He accumulated more than any of us in this room will ever dream of accumulating. He got to the end of it all. He had it all. And he looked back on his life and he said, it's meaningless. It never satisfied It didn't work. And the sad reality for so many of us is we're never gonna be Solomon. We're never gonna get to that point where we've tasted everything that there is to be tasted and realized that it wasn't enough. And so the danger that we run is that we can live our entire lives believing that satisfaction is in more of what we've already had that didn't work. And we're never gonna actually get to the end and realize, oh, I've been worshiping the wrong thing. It never could satisfy. It was never meant to. And so we can so easily worship the wrong things. So a Christian, Christian worship is marked by this, somebody that has simply become disillusioned with world worship. Like you've tried it, it's failed you, it's hurt you, it's led to depression, it's led to anxiety, it's led to addictions, it's led to suffering, it's led to this numb, apathetic life, and you realize it's not enough, and yet at some point through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God and somebody that had the boldness in your life to speak the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed to your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you come to a saving knowledge of the fact that you are a sinner who needed grace, and that grace was given to you through the power of Jesus Christ and he gives it to you abundantly. And what happens is Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of your heart are open to behold the glory of Jesus. And you become a worshiper of Jesus. You taste what Romans 8.23 calls the first fruit of the spirit, confirming your salvation and your hope. You see through a mirror dimly, the glory of Jesus is satisfying and good and beautiful and you give your heart to him and you stop chasing other things. That's what Christian worship is. 
It's only possible for the heart that's seen Jesus. It's only possible for the heart that's seen Jesus. That's why in Romans 12, 1, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. It's a response to what you're beholding. Worship is a response to what we're beholding. In John 17, 24, Jesus says a prayer to the Father. It's called the great high priestly prayer. And he prays this, Father, I want those you have given me, speaking of his disciples and by extension us today, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Here's what Jesus is saying. Father, there's this glory I had with you before we ever created any of this. And I know that if they can just see it, if they can just get a glimpse of it, if they could just watch me show off who I actually am, like I've humbled myself, I've come to earth, I've put on flesh, I've become nothing so that they could become sons of God, but I want them to see me as I am. I want them to see me in my Revelation 1 form where my face is glowing like the sun and my hair is white like wool and my feet are like burnished bronze in a fire. That's the me I want them to see because when they see that, everything will change. Their hearts will find what they were made for because they were made to worship me. That's what I want them to see. Please, Father, get them there so that I could show off. And that's what Jesus is saying this morning. You just need to see me. You just need to see me as I am your heart will be enraptured. You will be who you're supposed to be. Christian worship happens when we see Jesus. It's a natural response to what's in view. So let's spend the rest of our time, the next 10, 15 minutes or so, talking about gathered Christian worship. Gathered Christian worship is the people of God coming together to express glad surrender to wholehearted pursuit of, and overflowing praise for Jesus. It's us together exercising Christian worship. In Isaiah chapter six, verses one through five, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God. He writes this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So what we see here, the prophet Isaiah sees God for who he is, a holy God, seated on a throne, and, and we're told that the train of his robe fills the temple. It's a symbol of honor. In the same way we give a bride a train on her wedding day. That's her day. She's, she's the prize. She's the, one of the, the person of honor. And so there's a train that people will carry behind her. But God's, the train of God's robe fills the temple. It's just piled on top of itself. 
Just incredible honor. And, and at, at his right and left, we're told that there's these angels called seraphim hovering around him, crying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And one angel cries it. And then the other one in return says, you're right. That's good news. I'm gonna say it back. Holy, holy, holy. And for all eternity, they're just screaming of God's holiness back and forth. And as they're doing it, they're covering their face with their wings. They have six wings and with two wings, they're covering their face, symbolizing this humility that I can't even show my face in front of this kind of holiness, in front of this kind of glory. I'm not worthy to show my face to this. And then with two, they're covering their feet, symbolizing that anything of humanity, of creaturely form cannot be exposed in front of this kind of holiness. And so they cover their feet and with two, they fly and they scream, God is holy. And when Isaiah sees this, what's his response? It's the same response that we have today. What was me? I'm unworthy. I, I, I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. I, how could I possibly come into the presence of this kind of being? So see, here's why I want to start here when we talk about gathered worship. How are we able to come before a holy God as a congregation and sing his praise? Like, what kind of, how has that happened? See, Isaiah knew he needed a mediator. He needed an intercessor. He needed someone between him and the father, opening the way for him to even relate to or know or even look upon this kind of holiness and glory. And throughout the Bible, that's been the reality. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel didn't have the kind of access to the father that we have, to God's glory that we have. The glory of God literally dwelled in the Old Testament in a tabernacle that the nation of Israel had to carry around and set up wherever they went and God's presence dwelt with the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And only the priest could pass through the curtain that hung off to make atonement for the sins of the people and to intercede as a mediator. And any time that the nation of Israel would come to the tabernacle, when they would enter in, they would have to bring an animal sacrifice to atone for their sins. A pure animal, a spotless lamb that would be murdered because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so it foreshadows something to come. In the, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel could only come together to worship at specific times. These, these feasts or these, these festivals like the Passover or the Feast of Booths, it wasn't a weekly thing. It was like a few times a year they'd finally get to come together. They didn't have the kind of access we had. There were all these rituals, all these... Um, obligations they had to fulfill and only the priests could intercede. They were the mediators for the people. They lived in the tabernacle, the tribe of the Levites, and they intercessed for the people. See, they didn't have this kind of excess. So what changed? What changed? What's different today in 2018 that we can just show up at church with a cup of coffee in our hand and try to hide in the back and sing worship songs? What changed? Hebrews 10 19 through 20 changed. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You wanna know what changed? Christ came. No longer 
is animal sacrifice necessary because Christ became the one pure and spotless lamb that was slain for the sins of the world and all sins past, present, and future by all who would come to God by faith in Jesus are forgiven once and for all. So no longer do we have to live like that. No longer do we need priests to intercede for us so that we can come to God, a holy God, and worship him. Why? Because Jesus is the great high priest. No longer is there a curtain between the holy and holies. Why? Because we enter through the curtain that is Christ's body because he's the way to the Father. Now he's the one that gives us access No longer do we need a tabernacle. No longer do we only worship a few times a year. We come together weekly. We come together freely anytime we want. Why? Because Christ is our intercessor. Christ is our mediator. Christ is the way. And Christ is the one that we worship. And Christ is the one that gets glory. So hear me. You may come to church and think this is just normal. Like churches, we come, it's a little boring. I'll go when I have to. Um, Or sure, it's an activity to do on Sunday. It's maybe a hobby. But listen to me, what's happening in this room is supernatural every Sunday. What's happening in this room is supernatural. Every time we are the people of God, forgiven by a holy God, coming with an access experienced by very few generations to worship a living God that welcomes us, loves us, wants to receive our praise by the blood of Jesus and who delights in what we bring. So often I've heard it said and taught that the worship leader, that my job as a worship leader is to lead the congregation into the presence of Jesus. That's way too big a task for me. There is one person that leads the congregation into the presence of Jesus. Jesus. My job as a worship leader, as a preacher, as a pastor, Matt's job every Sunday as he unfolds the word for us is to show us Jesus, is to get Jesus as high as we can so that we aren't trusting in our own trinkets or our own righteousness or our own filthy rags, but we're trusting in the life of Jesus Christ shed for us so that we can come and worship. That's it. That's what we're doing here every Sunday. That's the fuel for our church, which is why to answer the question at hand, yes, theology matters in worship. Yes, theology matters in worship. Yes, every lyric matters in worship. God must be worshiped in truth. He must be worshiped biblically. John 24 says God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Um, I love my wife, Brooke. So much, and I, I, I gotta think if I came to her one Sunday or one day and I was just like, Brooke, I love you so much. I love your curly black hair. I love your deep blue eyes. I love your cowboy boot collection. Uh, I love your long fingernails. I just lo- I, I'm just pouring my heart out to her and she's going, well, that's great, thank you for the affection, but I don't, I'm not any of those things. Who are you talking about? And do we need to have a different conversation? <laughs> Listen, we must worship God for who he is. And how do we do that? We sing the word of God back to God. The way that we know we are worshiping in spirit and truth is that we worship through the word of God. We sing the Bible back to God and we choose our songs at Story City to be in line with the Bible. We wanna sing the truth of God's word back to him. Not only must our songs be theologically true, but they must be theologically balanced. So um, about two years ago, I realized that I needed to change my diet because uh, I realized that a diet of cheese and bread was wreaking havoc on my body. And, uh, and so I started eating things like vegetables and uh, fruit and, uh, and fiber and... Uh, yeah, and uh, 
And you know, it helped because I need balance in my diet. I need balance in my diet. In the same way, we need balance in the songs we're singing. See, every church has its favorite foods. Like some churches just love like chipper worship where everything's happy and, and good all the time and great and good. We need happy, we need joy, we need celebration. We need that gear in our worship. But when that's everything, you know what? That kind of starts discipling us in what Christianity should feel like. Christianity's always happy. Christianity's always chipper. Christianity, life is always good. But you know what that does? That ill prepares us for the realities of the Christian life because Jesus said, in this life, you will have troubles. And so we need a gear in worship to sing about the realities of suffering, to sing about the realities of death, to sing about the realities of sin, but then to land at the realities of the grandeur of grace that has covered it and given us a hope that is coming. See, we need balance. Some churches love to sing deep, rich theological songs and their songs are like reading an essay and that's fine and that's good. And we need that gear. But when that's the only gear you have, eventually you lose the sense of being able to just sit at Jesus' feet and worship him in simplicity for who he is and meditate and love him. And so we need both theological richness in our lyrics and we need room to just meditate and enjoy the spirit of God meeting with us where we are. We need both. We need balance in our diet. But the one thing, this is where I'll land this morning. The one thing we need more than anything We need to avoid Adam's comfort food. Let me tell you what that is. Adam's comfort food. The Bible calls Adam who took the bait, the the apple, the first Adam. And Jesus in the scriptures is called the second Adam, the one who fulfilled things. My comfort food is Ben and Jerry's, um, preferably uh, half-baked. I could eat a whole bin of it and not even think twice. We love... The comfort food of the, of, of the first Adam, his, his comfort food is this. It's, it's this ability to sing songs about his passion, his love for the Lord, his, um, his strength, his fervor, his, his commitment. See, we are opposed radically to the reality of grace in our first nature. We don't like the reality. We don't like admitting the reality that the only thing we committed to our, we com, only thing we um, gave to our salvation that made it possible was the sin that made it necessary. We don't want to sing about that. We, and so we like to sing songs that say, God, I'm committed to you. I will do this. And that's not what worship is for. Worship is about singing, not about what we will accomplish for God or how committed we are to God, but how committed God is to us, how much he has done on our behalf. Worship is about singing the gospel. But our comfort food, what we cling to is, I'm gonna do this because it feels good to be able to tell God, I'm gonna do something for you. But the reality is the new Adam's feast that the spirit of God living inside of us that illuminates the room and lights it up is not when we sing about what we're gonna do for God, but when we begin to sing about what Christ has done for us. When we begin to sing about his life poured out, about the reality that he gave his life to welcome us back home to the Father, the spirit moves within us and the congregation comes together in community and the church is edified and it grows. So what we wanna sing every week is not of our strength, but of Christ's strength. What we come here every week to admit is not that we're religious people that got it figured out and do life better than the people out there, but in in mercy and in grace to say like Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy that we're the chief of sinners, saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, who is welcome to sin. And so we run with passion towards the lost and we welcome them in this place because that's who we are apart from saving grace. That's it, that's all any of us are. And so we welcome 
the spirit of God as we sing the gospel back to God through the word of God. Not with the comfort food of our passion or fervor or commitment, but with the feast, the table spread wide of justification through Christ alone. The table spread wide of Christ's commitment to us that is unwavering. Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So we've left a little time at the end this morning. We're gonna do this. We're gonna sing a few songs. We're gonna sing the gospel back to God. We're gonna sing the Bible back to God. Let's do this with joy, knowing that Christ is our intercessor, our mediator. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift of worship. Thank you that you love to hear us sing because of Christ. Be with us now as we worship you. It's in Jesus' name. Uh, We've also uh, got tables down here, up there. We're gonna take communion this morning, which is a sacrament of worship. Just wanna encourage you, if if you're new to the faith, if if you're not trusting in Jesus for salvation, you are loved, you are welcome here. But this is a time reserved specifically for believers. And so we just ask you to just sit and pray and worship. For those that have trusted in Christ, let's come take of his body, take of his blood, look backwards backwards towards Christ and forwards to our coming hope as we worship. It's in Jesus' name. Let's do this.